Pauline, give me some of your tots. I ate his liver with some fava beans. A nice Chianti. Combo, pan fry, deep fry, stir fry. Yummy! Hey guys, welcome to The Cooking Show. I'm your host, Bob, and this week I made something by request. Our request came in uh, from James that we cover um, corned beef or pastrami or both. I don't remember exactly how he worded it, but uh, consider it like a two-for-one episode because basically in order to make pastrami, you first have to make corned beef. All right. So you might as well. Oh, and then also you have the benefit of the cut of meat that you're using, the brisket being relatively large. So, you know, for an average person just making it for personal consumption, you could definitely get one brisket and then make several different products, at least two, at least corned beef and pastrami, uh, maybe something else. Who knows? All right. So that's what we're going to look at this week. Before we get started, let's say corned beef. Like you think about that. It's one of those names that you hear it a million times. You probably question it when you were a kid and then eventually just gave it up. You're like, yeah, it's corned beef, whatever. I don't know why it's called corned beef. There's no corn involved. <laughs> um, I believe uh, the prevailing story is that etymologically, corned beef is descended from a Germanic word, kernum, uh, kernum, K-E-R-N-A-M, something like that, which if you think about it, it would serve as the preceding word for kernel, K-E-R-N-A-L. And this referred to the relatively large kernels of salt that were used to preserve beef in you know, Central Europe. When would this have been? I don't remember. I didn't look up the, uh, the, the, the date of origin. But yeah, the fact that they would cure beef with relatively large, this would be mined salt, you know, if it's in areas now considered Germany. It wouldn't have been necessarily like sea salt like you would have in coastal areas, but you would be mining salt and then you would get larger chunks of salt and break it down. So naturally you would end up with relatively larger particles of salt that you would use in your curing process. I picked up, I actually picked up a bunch of meat from a local butcher shop that just opened. Local, not, wasn't super close to me, but Whatever, they just opened a couple of weeks ago. Fat Butcher in Lawrenceville in Pittsburgh. It was really good if you're listening to this and you're, you need to pick up some decent meat and you can't find where it is uh, or where it is located. Uh, check out Fat Butcher. They are a relatively small shop. They have only been open for a couple of weeks and they do whole animal butchery and they use a lot of really high quality local farms that produce really nice animals. Um, but because of that, might want to call in advance. Don't just show up thinking they're going to have the moon and the stars because, you know, it takes it takes a while to get up to speed, okay? But anyway, uh, from Fat Butcher, I got a couple of uh, hams. It'll be our Christmas hams. I might do an episode on making hams. Who knows? I uh, got a, a beef brisket that I used for this, and then I got just a, a very large skin-on pork belly that I have curing for bacon, which if you go back to, I believe it was episode number one, it was uh, the Heritage Craft Butcher's bacon recipe. Uh, I just used a more simplified, rustic uh, bacon recipe for that one. Um, but then I also used the, the the shanks from those hams to make the tonneau de miale last week. So maybe, maybe we put two plugs in for Fat Butcher. I don't know if I mentioned them last week or not. 
But anyway, let's make some pastrami. Uh, obviously, check out the show notes. You want to look at uh, recipes. The recipes are pretty important for this because there's a lot of proportions. There's an ingredient in there that uh, you don't want to use too much of, but is really only used for kind of the secondary effects. We'll talk about that, but it's the the primary use of you know, your sodium nitrite is in preventing botulism. Um, but with a corned beef and pastrami product, uh, there really isn't a whole lot of uh, danger in botulism. So instead, we're using it specifically for the color, flavor, and texture change that it imparts onto the beef. Okay. But yeah, check out the show notes. We'll have the, the recipe in there and we'll have the link to the imager album that'll show the step-by-step -step from going from, you know, a whole brisket into a couple of hunks of corned beef and a big slab of smoky peppery pastrami. It was fantastic. I had had sandwiches last night with my boy and they were delicious. Um, so we'll have pictures for that. I don't think I'm going to have any uh, links to special equipment or ingredients. All the ingredients are pretty, pretty straightforward. And special equipment, I mean, outside of a smoker, you know, I don't really know. I mean, there's maybe I, maybe I can find uh, a link to a couple injectors. You know, the cheap one that everybody has, everybody who injects meat has, which is like the little three-prong Florida Lee hypodermic needle thing those those are fine if you're making like two or three hams a year or whatever um, but if you're going to do higher volume uh, i'll see if i can find a link to the big pump injector that allows you to really turn over some hams pretty quickly all right but 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 but, but. let's look so whenever you have your your uh your your brisket there depending on where you get it, if you get it from the grocery store you get it from a butcher if the butcher is selling it to you and it's you know in the middle of the summer and it's brisket season for just like smoked brisket yeah uh, you might get a different a different trim or whatever on on the brisket they might take more fat off in some cases they might take less fat off in other cases whatever you can trim up your brisket how you see fit for this particular use case because you don't want to you don't want to cut all the fat off because you definitely want that fat to remain um, but you can take some of it off or you can take none of it off like i didn't trim mine at all i was like it's it's shaped up a little bit, but you know, whatever. And the reason that if you're making pastrami, you probably want to leave more fat on there than if you're making corned beef. And hopefully I can remember to circle back to that point later. It all has to do with like the multiple cookings and the long smoke period and all that kind of stuff. You want more fat as an insulating layer, as something that's going to, you know, melt and, and, and wick away without drawing moisture out of the, out of the brisket itself. I'm going to take a drink of coffee here and I'm back. <laughs> all right. So I'm not going to talk too much about, about the quantities of things for making the brine because the quantity of brine that you make is really going to be dependent on a number of things. One, how big is your brisket? You know, one gallon of brine is fine for some, some briskets. It's fine for some partial briskets if you just get like the flat or the point or whatever. But I think you'll find that one gallon of brine is uh too, too little brine. It's not enough. Then you can make two gallons of brine and that might be fine depending on the second variable, which is the vessel that you're going to be corning your meat in. You know, are you using a big five gallon bucket? Are you using a meat lug like I did? Are you using some kind of container, a giant vacuum bag? Who knows? So we'll talk about what's in the brine 
and uh, the recipe will probably be um, uh, constructed for two gallons of brine, and uh, we'll have ratios for all of the individual ingredients so that if, you know, what if you want to make three or four briskets and you need 10 gallons of brine? Well, then, you know, you can just scale it up very easily that way. You know, for the brine, number one, water. You need cold water, uh, you need kosher salt, and you need regular granulated sugar. Uh, your pink salt, this is your curing salt, number one. Your prog powder, number one. Sodium nitrite, pink uh, curing salt. Uh, they have all kinds of different... Uh, prog powder, number one. I don't know how many different... If I've said that one already. <laughs> anyway, you need that. Pickling spice, which will... Right after we run through these, we'll go through and talk about what's in the pickling spice. You can just buy pickling spice at the grocery store, but if you have a really well-stocked uh, spice cabinet, spice rack, spice larder, whatever, um, you, you can mix it up your, on your own. Dark brown sugar, honey, and garlic. I use granulated garlic, and let's look at what we used in our pickling spice. All right, pickling spice. Pickling Spice was the Spice Girl that didn't make it into the videos in the late 90s because she was she had a sour disposition. I shouldn't do jokes on this podcast. Okay. Um, black peppercorns, whole ones, mustard seeds, hot pepper flakes, chili pepper, chili crushed, crushed red pepper flakes. What are they called? You know, the things that the in the shaky bottle at the pizzeria, you know? Allspice berries, cinnamon sticks, bay leaves, cloves, ginger. Some of these pickling spice recipes will say to use coriander. I specifically omitted coriander from the pickling spice because, 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 uh, two reasons. One, the rub on the outside of the pastrami is like 50% coriander. So throwing a half dozen coriander seeds into a couple gallons of brine for three or four days is not going to change the flavor of the underlying meat enough for it to be detectable later. A lot of these flavors are going to be very subtle in the corned beef, and then they're going to be completely blown out in the pastrami because the pastrami has a secondary step of smoking for hours and hours and hours and hours and coating the entire outside of the surface of the meat with black pepper, coriander, and in some cases, a bunch of other stuff. And let me tell you what, a quick brine with a little, just an essence, you know, one juniper berry or something like that, uh, that's not going to be detectable after 12 hours of smoking and then reheating and, uh, you know, slathering with spicy mustard and all that other kind of stuff. So just leave it out because whenever you actually prepare your corned beef, anything that you want in there that isn't in the original brine concoction uh, can be added then. And it'll be a little bit more prevalent, a little bit more forward on the palate. You know what I mean? All right. So you get your brine all mixed up. Now, if, if it seems like there's a whole lot of sugar and salt involved in this brine, there is. It absolutely is a, is a high concentration of both of those seasonings. Uh, and the reason is that we don't have to necessarily brine this for a month the way we do like a whole ham. Um, beef is a little bit more absorbent. It's a little bit more receptive to uh, to the brine than pork is for some reason. I don't know if it's a different you know composition of the fat or whatever. Um, but for some reason, you can brine you know a giant uh, brisket like this in three or four days 
with minimal injection, even, you know, depending on how thick it is, zero injection. You know, if it's a real thick brisket, maybe let it run for a week and you'll be fine. But if you just drop a whole ham into a bucket of brine for a week, you are not going to get anywhere near the, the, the penetration of the cure that you would with beef, specifically with brisket as a subcategory or whatever. So yeah, but there is a lot, there definitely is a lot of sugar, a lot of salt. If you start, like basically the last ingredient you that you want to add to your brine is the pink salt or the curing salt, the prog powder, the sodium nitrite. And the reason is, let's say you dump everything in there except for the sodium nitrite. And you get your whisk on and you're stirring and you're stirring and you're stirring. And you just cannot get this brine to, to clarify. And what I mean by that is to get like a full dissolution of the of the salt and the sugar you stir it stir it stir it it's still cloudy there's still a pile of salt and sugar in the bottom of the pan you just can't get it to dissolve fully uh you might want to heat it up you know bring it to a simmer bring it to a boil if you do that sodium nitrite is uh, very volatile when it's heated that's why we use it in cooked sausages because it kind of i don't want to say it, it doesn't cook out but it's like activated by heat and smoke so you don't want to put that into a hot brine because you risk having the night. I don't know. I don't know if the nitrogen will will escape or what, but it's it, it's not advised. It's not advised. You, if you do heat this up in order to get a full dissolution, let it cool back down at least to room temperature before adding your sodium nitrate. Okay, but you get that in there. Uh, you add your pickling spice. You know this. So with the pickling spice, if you go through and you just use like I don't know two, two one to two tablespoons of everything plus a whole bunch of bay leaves and two cinnamon sticks, you're going to have half a lifetime supply of pickling spice, depending on how much pickling you do. I mean, it wouldn't last, it would last me six months, whatever. But it's a large amount because you only need like a tablespoon of pickling spice per gallon of brine that you're making. It's so, it's such a formality adding the pickling spice. I, I do it because that's what you're supposed to do. But I, you know, if you gave me uh, two pastrami sandwiches, and said, one of these uses three times as much pickling spice in the brine as what's called for. And the other one completely omits the pickling spice. I guarantee you, I can't tell the difference. Now with the corned beef, maybe, maybe. So uh, yeah, if you make that pickling spice up, uh, keep it in a jar or something. It'll keep forever. Stick it in the, in the water in the in the pantry or whatever and whenever you make bread and butter pickles in the summer you can use that whenever you make your second corned beef because the first one turned out so great you'll have it uh and then yeah whatever okay anyway 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 so you make your brine you make sure it's cool you know room temperature would be the absolute warmest that you want it i think i i got everything to dissolve and i had it going at a good you know, tap, cold water tap temperature. At this point, you need to have a vessel, a vessel for storing your beef while it is brining. Uh, ideally, a three-gallon, you know, half-size bucket or a five-gallon bucket, preferably with a lid, but you can put saran wrap over it, whatever, would work good because it's high and narrow. So you get your meat in there and when you pour your brine in, it's going to come up really high on the meat itself. One gallon probably wouldn't work. I, I was thinking I would need two gallons. I thought I had an extra bucket. All my buckets are occupied with hams, 
So uh, that wasn't going to work. So I ended up using a meat lug, which is wide and low. So I ended up having to make a couple extra gallons of brine after I took my pictures. You know, my my corn, my well, not corned beef, I guess. My brisket was fully submerged, submerged, even though in the photos it looks like it has a nice little island poking out of the surface of the brine. But anyway, yeah, get that into your into your vessel and pour your brine in. If you need to make more, just do the thing. You know, don't try to cut corners. Don't just fill it with regular water. You'll dilute the brine too much. It won't penetrate as far into the, into the meat, the fat as you want it to. You know, make some more. Make sure you have that covered. And then um, ideally, uh, you put it in the refrigerator. However, uh, not everybody, certainly not me, <laughs> has room for a five-gallon bucket or, God forbid, a, I don't know, 23-liter meat lug or whatever that thing is in the refrigerator. But, you know, the magic of living in a temperate climate and the and the magic of the seasonality of food, you know, pastrami, to me, I told my wife whenever I, I said I was going to make pastrami and corned beef, I was like, I know we can make the corned beef and just hold on to them, you know, throw them in the freezer until St. Patrick's Day. But the pastrami, I feel like that's, that's like a Christmas food to me. And, I, and she was like, I don't understand what you're talking about. I'm like, I don't know where I'm coming from here either, but it's cold. And that is when I think about making cold smoked or smoked meats, hams, pastrami, corned beef, all that kind of stuff is a winter type of delicacy. So uh, anyway, long story short, uh, I've got some buckets of hams. I uh, had my meat lug full of brisket and brine and my bacon and everything uh, sitting in cold storage on a workbench in the barn because it is the middle of December and it has not been much above refrigerator temperatures for the greater part of a week at this point. So I'm, I'm riding, riding real nice. And if, if the temperature dips down below freezing, there's so much salt <laughs> in these products, uh, they're not going to freeze. So you're good to go. So, uh, the time that you want to brine, your corned beef, because that's what it's going to be, sort of, at the end of this uh, brining process. We're going to take another two steps to turn part of it into pastrami. But, you know, uh, a lot of really aggressive recipes will say brine it for three days. Three days. And yet it will work. If you're brining it for three days or four days, maybe even five days, you probably want to, you know, give it a few injections into the thickest part of the brisket to make sure that you get some brine in there. Um, but you can go a, a week, a, a week's brine would be ideal. And at that point you can just sort of let this wallow in the brine for a week, um, with minimal to no injecting and you should be a okay on that. After a week, you remove the brisket from the brine, discard the brine. It seems like a waste, but there is really no use whatsoever for the brine during the brining process. What happens is uh, sort of like an osmosis process where the brine is saltier than the meat. So the, the meat sucks in some brine trying to create equilibrium, uh, a, salinity, a salinity equilibrium, um, uh, homeostasis between what is outside and what is inside. It's kind of like as, as on earth, so there, I don't, I'm, I don't go to church not enough to know. But you know what they say? It's like the the what you knew to be true will be true also. So that's what's this is so convoluted. That's what the salts try to do. Try to be equal outside and inside. So the the brisket's going to absorb a bunch of the brine. It might absorb too much 
you know, it's this is a this is a it's a biologic entity, but it is dead. It does not have a mind. So it sucks in a bunch of brine and goes, whoa, too salty. And then it pushes it back out. But as it pushes it back out, it gives off some of its own natural water content that is leached out from the muscle fibers. And that, that transfer goes back and forth a few times. Usually one full cycle at about the seven-day period, which I can see why a lot of these recipes call for a three- to four-day brine. Because on day three or day four, that's sort of the apex of the uptake of brine. If you imagine the absorption of salt graphed out on like a um, a bell curve, kind of a, a parabolic graph, the the top of the bell curve, the point of as close to equilibrium as you're going to get is going to be, you know, at the three to four day point, and it's going to pull in a whole bunch of, of salty brine, and then it's probably going to flush some back out. That's the that's the falling end of the bell curve. But it'll usually overshoot on discharging salt and it'll go through a second a second sort of respiration of inhaling all the salty brine. And that's why that's why I cure bacon for two weeks because it allows it to take on a bunch of salt, express a bunch of salty brine made of the liquid that is captured within the muscle fibers and then suck it in a second time. But yeah, so I guess it makes perfect sense when I talk through it. I don't know. All right, so, so you take it out of the brine. Take your brisket out of the brine. You discard the brine. Um, you probably have flecks of allspice berries and bay leaf and, you know, black peppercorn. Get rid of those. Flick them off. Pick them off. Flick them off. Do whatever you need to do. Get a nice, clean brisket. You can pat that dry a little bit. I cut it directly in half, sort of, and used the fatter point end to take to the promised land of pastrami, while the rest, the flat, more or less, I mean, roughly half of the brisket, the you know uniform thickness, was then cut into three chunks in vacuum sealed. And we will hold on to that until St. Patrick's Day when we will prepare some corned beef and cabbage or something, some god-awful thing like that that is actually very delicious, but just thinking about it, it's like one of those things, you know, you don't really start looking forward to it until it's March. And you're like, you know what? I can go for some dark beer and, cat and boiled cabbage right now. Um, but, you know, when you're when you're a, a couple weeks out of Thanksgiving, looking forward to Christmas, and it's just like ham and turkey and roast beef and pastrami and all these really delicious things. Nobody's nobody's pining for the corned beef at this, this time. But anyway, uh, whenever you actually produce your finished corned beef, what you do is you want to cook this in a, in a liquid water, mix in some beer, you know, you can throw in a Guinness or something like that. Uh, some aromatics. I always like to do sliced onion. Um, in this case, I'll use whole cloves of garlic and thyme, just sprigs of thyme right on top. And what you do with the uh, corned beef is, is put it in a vessel, a cooking vessel, roasting pan, a pan, a high-sided skillet, saute, whatever. And bring the liquid level up to about the halfway point on the, the corned beef. And then roast that moderate temperature for, you know, a couple hours until, it, it, until you bring it up to a nice, you know, one, 160, 170 degrees. And it's been held there for a little while. It'll be, you know, fall apart, delicious. Uh, what, what happens there is you get the braising action from the, from the corned beef sitting in the liquid. Oh, yeah. You also probably want to add some pickling spice. You want to re-up your pickling spice into the into the braising liquid there. You know, you think whenever you buy a corned beef in the grocery store, it always comes with a little separated, a separate packet of pickling spice that's packaged with the corned beef. 
no reason to do that if you're doing it at home. Uh, there's no benefit of having the pickling spice in a separate little plastic bag sealed and put in there. Um, it's just a convenience thing. So if you're if you're making it, just package the meat up itself, and then whenever you cook it later, you know, pull, break out that break out that jar of pickling spice that you put together a few months prior and use a tablespoon of that in the cooking liquid. But anyway, back to why you get half of that corned beef sticking out of the liquid. What happens there is, you know, as it ro as it's roasting or like I, it, when it's in the oven, you know, that's a, it's a good thing to do it in the oven as opposed to like a crock pot. The, the surface that is exposed to the air, it will dry out and, and get a nice texture to it, like a little bit of a, a toothsome mouthfeel to it. But also, as the fat renders and sort of escapes to the surface, it doesn't immediately just float off in the cooking liquid. It stays in contact with the top of that of that uh, corned beef, and you get like a basting effect, and you get the mixing of the sweet, salty, rendered fat flavors from the interior mixing with you know, the aromatics, if you put beer into the cooking liquid, um, you have the pickling spices. So the pickling spices are generally imparting flavorful, volatile oils to the cooking environment. So like if there's clove and mustard seed and all this stuff, there are, there are flavorful oils in those seeds or in that uh, material that will loosen up whenever they're, heat, when they're heated. They'll thin out and they'll start being more energetic and running around. So the more chance that that has to come into contact with a salty, sugary, rendered fat, the better. So you have a nice surface that is not submerged in water that is available to commingle with some of those pickling spices uh, that'll work really nice for you. Okay. But back to the pastrami, the half of the brisket that doesn't get vac sealed and stuck in the freezer until March. We're going to make a dry rub for the pastrami that I generically refer to as a pastrami rub and it is ground coriander and coarsely ground black pepper now some pastrami rubs if you just google pastrami recipes you're going to find infinite variations on the rub that goes on the outside there are pastrami rubs that say hey you know add brown sugar and cayenne pepper and you know juniper basically all the pickling spices ground into a powder and, and incorporated into them I don't find a lot of that other stuff to be necessary. In fact, I, I, I like sticking to like the canon of flavor here, which is black pepper and coriander. And the reason that I left the coriander out of the brining liquid uh, was because I only had a tiny little jar of coriander and I wanted to use it for the rub here. But I made up the whole story about how it would blow out the flavor. But really, there's no downside, including it when you're brining it. Uh, you just might not actually detect the flavor on the back end with the final product, but we don't, you know, I only had a little bit of coriander. That's why I used it for the rub. <laughs> so anyway, uh, that rub. Now, this rub is important. Uh, number one, number one, it's ooh, big shot of flavor. You know, black pepper and coriander are very forward uh, flavors. They're going to taste not overpowering, but dominant, dominant, dominant flavors. Yes. But also we are going to smoke the pastrami for a long time. And the rub is going to it's going to fulfill two obligations during the smoking process. One, the rub itself, all the, you know, if you think about, you've seen these pictures of like a, the tip of a hypodermic needle or the edge of a razor blade under a, an electron microscope. And it's like this alien uh, landscape of, of cliffs and valleys and, and 
shards of metal flying off here. It just, it looks chaotic. And you, and you think, man, from the macro level, this is uh, a precision instrument. You know, this is the, the, the sharpest needle, the sharpest blade. But then whenever you look at it up close, you're like, oh my God, everything, everything is just, you know, cedar shakes. Well, that's sort of what we're doing to the surface of the pastrami. We're creating a lot of texture and a lot of extra surface area because as the smoke flows over the surface here, we want it to catch on every little shard of peppercorn and coriander husk or whatever. It's a coriander seed, but I don't know if you call it the seed, shell, husk, whatever. You want the, the, the smoke to hit as many little particles as possible and by having these, you know, strewn around the outside, uh, you create a good environment for holding and slowing down and capturing the smoke on the surface of the meat. Secondly, as we smoke this, it's going to very slowly come up to temperature. The, the smoking process is very gradual. As you do that, you know, the brisket is a very fatty cut of meat and we're using the point end of the brisket so it's even fattier. As it heats up, that fat's going to render and it's going to seep out of the surface. And having a lot of mm, fair, like desiccated plant matter, and that's what it is, right? Peppercorns, coriander seeds, they are dry, woody seeds that are just plant matter. They're very absorptive as this fat comes out and it's pulling with it, you know, salty, sugary brine, honey, brown sugar, white sugar, kosher salt, all this delicious stuff. And as it comes out to the surface, that powder, that, that rub, that, that gritty plant matter on the outside is going to absorb a lot of that fat. It's going to slow down its transit. It's going to, um, it, it's going, it's like a sponge for flavor and it's both, it's, it's capturing flavor from without and from within it's a, it's beautiful like that's the it is that intermediary point between you know the the world at large and the the corpus of the meat itself you know it's taking smoke from the environment and it's mixing it with really delicious beef fat and everything else so the smoking portion and the rub those are the primary differentiators between the pastrami and the corned beef underneath though you know it's like a you you, you pop the hood on a lexus Hey, what do you got? You got Toyota engine. You've got Toyota parts. You just got everything just uh, just just elevated a little bit, you know, bumped up, just upgraded on everything. <laughs> and that's what pastrami is. Pastrami is just upgraded corned beef. All right. So uh, let's talk about the smoking uh, because smokers are as different as uh, as grains of sand on the beach. I don't know. <laughs> some people some people have an offset smoker. Some people have a smoke house. Some people have smoke cabinets. Some people have some home-built jury rig thing of, you know, a Weber kettle, kettle grill with an offset firebox and some, you know, dryer hose connecting the two. I'm just going through all the different configurations of smokers that I have. Uh, you know, a metal uh, wardrobe cabinet from Craigslist with a fire in the bottom. <laughs> There's a million different smokers. My current smokehouse is a cedar shack that you build a fire in the bottom and you put meat in the top. And uh, that works really well um, for long, slow, cold smoking or very, very slow, hot smoking. If you're using a, a smoker that you can just like set temperature and, you know, load wood pellets into a hopper or something like that, insert a probe thermometer, set it to 250 degrees and smoke that until... Your internal temperature is 150 
and then um, you know cut the heat and let it sort of uh, come back down to temperature slowly. You know, especially if you're outside in in today's weather. You know, what I did was I smoked uh, for four or five hours in the smokehouse just gradually building up the heat and the brisket itself and the pastrami itself by placing it on a rack over the fire. It was basically, it was in the midpoint between the fire and the roof of the smokehouse. So the column of heat that's rising off of the fire was, you know, going straight through the pastrami, but it still took, you know, after four or five hours, we were at 135 degrees, something like that. So I knew that with a couple extra logs on the fire, it would, it would eventually hit 150, you know, a couple hours later. Um, but then I let it basically, I, I let this run overnight. I started it at like four o'clock in the afternoon, five hours later, it's nine o'clock at night, it's dark, it's cold, whatever. And the brisket inside had gotten to 135. So I put two more logs on the fire and closed it up knowing that it's, this is going to get to between 150 and 160. And then eventually that fire is going to burn down. And by morning, it's going to be back down to refrigerator temperature because it's, you know, 35 degrees outside. And, uh, you know, once that fire dies, that heat is going to be completely wicked away from that smokehouse. And uh, that'll work out fine. And it worked perfectly. The next day, I had a perfectly cooked... Uh, pastrami sitting in the smokehouse that looks like an outhouse out in the yard. And uh, then we moved on to the th the third step. That's the thing is at this point you have pastrami, but unless you really want like cold pastrami, you're not going to just like start slicing this up for sandwiches at this point. Now we want to bring it up to temperature in, in a controlled environment. So we put it in a roasting pan on a rack with water underneath. So unlike the corned beef where you bring the water up, halfway up the the body of the of the cut itself in this case the water is only underneath there's no contact with the water by the pastrami itself started that off in a 250 degree oven until we you know after a couple hours just to make it pliable uh then i increased the temperature to 300 and then eventually a 350 because you know after a couple hours i was like yeah i do want to eat this at some point but this is this is a very patient, a patient kind of recipe. You know, the smoking obviously is leisurely, and it gives you something to look forward to. And then, uh, whenever you actually reheat it, you want to do so very slowly, very gently. Bring it up to 150 degrees again, and then get it out. Let it let it rest for a little bit, and then slice it as thin as you can. Now. Are you going to be using a brisket knife or a carving knife? Do you have a slicer? I don't know. If you have a slicer, I'm very proud of you. If you're just using a knife, you can get really good results. Um, it's a fairly rustic, cured, you know, lunch meat type of product. So, you know, you don't want to cut giant chunks of it off, but you, you, can, you don't have to do it paper thin or anything like that. Now, traditionally, traditionally, as I understand, I've never been, I've never been to New York City. I've never been to an actual Jewish deli. Maybe next summer I'll make a point to go to a Jewish deli. But from what I understand, the traditional pastrami sandwich is pastrami, a good spicy brown mustard, and rye bread. The end, you know. And then obviously, you know, the, the whole trope is that, you know, you get six inches of pastrami between two little thin slices of rye bread and a bunch of mustard on there. I, I'm, not, I'm not making tourist sandwiches. I'm just making it reasonable sandwiches for myself. You know, in some cases you might want to add a cheese. And if you do, 
May I suggest like a Swiss cheese or a German cheese? I used a I used a Jarlsberg, uh, nice nice melty Swiss style cheese with big holes in it. It was wonderful. You could throw some sauerkraut on there if you wanted. You could even maybe put um, uh, caraway seeds into the mustard on it if you really want to get wild. But um, you know, simpler is better. Um, I did I definitely wanted the cheesy component though because. Man, there's something about hot smoked meats and melty cheeses that are so, oh boy. And then you throw mustard in there. Hola mola. But anyway, yeah, it was really delicious. Oh yeah, and also I used um, I used my bread and butter pickles from, I don't know what episode it was, oh, a few back. It was the weird little midweek one that I did because I was like, hey, let's show people how to make pickles. So I used those and in the, in the sweetness, oh, the sweet and acid cut the the smoky and the salt and the creaminess the cheese and the spiciness of the mustard oh my god it was perfect it was the perfect symphony of flavors in your mouth and i i should i would be remiss if i didn't point out that the the unsung hero of flavor in uh pastrami is the actual beef fat that is in the brisket okay it is uh beef fat is something else i i'm a big fan of pork fat i am a pig man by trade, I am a pig man at heart, but uh, beef fat is really wonderful, especially whenever you add a smoky component. In fact, I believe in um, one of my favorite cookbooks, uh, Charcuterie, The Craft of Salting, Smoking, and Curing by Michael Rollman and Brian Polson. I believe that Brian Polson says of his hot dog recipe that like beef fat and smoke are the two like primary flavor ingredients or components, um, which really makes sense. I and mean, whenever you, you taste like, and I hate the word, but, the, but the unctuous texture of gently rendered beef fat and salt and all these other uh, wonderful flavors, man, it'll just knock your socks off. It is really good. So that's, uh, that is uh, corned beef and pastrami, uh, to, wonderful uh cousin charcuterie items i would i would have yeah, whether cousins or stepsisters sub stepbrother half brothers i don't know i don't know we might be we might be uh we might be belaboring the metaphor i'm not sure um but yeah that's that so definitely check out the pictorial of uh making this pastrami and corned beef uh the recipe for with and, and of course because we're making a brine it'll be like the proportions or uh, maybe i'll do the brine based on one gallon and if you have to scale it up if you do two gallons just use double everything like i did uh if you use three gallons use triple whatever and that and that way also if you make two gallons of brine and you realize like i did it's like ah this isn't enough then you make another an extra gallon or extra two gallon. You just look at the recipe and you're good to go. You know, that, it's tempting to do it by ratio. You know, saying like, oh, you're going to use eight percent of you know this, but then it's like they, it's like I know I'm making this in iterations of a gallon. So if you give me the recipe for one gallon, if I need to make five, it's a lot easier just mentally multiply everything by five than, you know, five gallon then multiplying everything by. 0 0.08, 0 0.0025, you know, yada, 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 yada. So that's what we'll do. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for letting me talk my way through that and come to a reasonable solution for us. Okay. So uh, check that out. Uh, this is one week from Christmas. So I ought to get working on next week's episode so I don't have to actually be doing all this work on Christmas night. 
I think we'll I think we'll just do a basic primer and overview of how to make a ham because I've got three of them over there that I can use for pretty pictures and I have to smoke them this week anyway. So a little preview next week's episode will be ham. Spoiler alert. All right. Have a good one. Thanks a lot.